Let's pray. Father, we ask that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart may be acceptable to you, O God, our, our rock and our redeemer. What a wonderful morning so far to worship the Lord together. Um, as we come to the end of Ephesians, it is a bittersweet journey for me. I've never really preached through a book. So it's sweet in that way, but bitter because we have to move on too. And it's a wonderful book to, to preach through. As we get to the end of summer, I remember um, my time as a student. My parents used to live in the Middle East, and I used to live downtown and uh, go to U of T. And every summer, I used to fly back home to meet with them. One summer, uh, I started talking to the person that sat next to me. And it turns out that he was an ex-Delta Force operator. So Delta Force is one of the elite uh, U.S., you know, not Army, really, a mix, of different, a mix of different things, but one of the most elite operators or soldiers in the U.S. Armed Forces. And he used to work for the uh, Delta Force, and he talked to me about the rigor of training, the kind of boot camp that they had, and the sheer mental and physical stamina they had. 48 hours doing drills on the beach, hallucinating because they haven't slept for 48 hours. They know that they're some of the best fighters in the world. And he believed that he was one of the best. He actually believed that if he went to hell, he could actually rule. That's how, that's how powerful he thought he was. The best of the best. Everybody else in the armed forces was a weak soldier to him. He talked about the training. He talked about how they excelled in reconnaissance. How they excelled in hand-to-hand combat and weapons training. This man was huge. He was muscular. He was tattooed all over. And he was the kind of person, if he wanted to, he could have just snapped me like a twig. Now, I thought of that also as I thought of warfare and civilian warfare when I thought of today's sermon. And even as we thought about the war in Ukraine, many civilians in Ukraine have been pushed into war. And they've never really trained for war. As I sat and I looked over at a mirror next to my desk, and I saw a severely obese man staring back at me, the grim reality is that there would be no way I'd make it past the first few minutes of a paintball game, let alone war against the strongest army in the world. If we were plunged into war tomorrow, us sitting over here, Would we even know how to fight? Could we survive the onslaught of an elite, experienced army, let alone a single Delta Force operator coming at us? Look around. Look at the people sitting next to you. If it was any other week, I'd be joining the rest of us with Hawaiian shirts. The church is made up of civilians. Family members. How does a civilian population respond to the attacks of an elite, trained, and experienced army? How are you and I going to survive being attacked by the most powerful enemies, not in the world, but in the universe? 
This isn't an army of Russian soldiers or elite American soldiers. This isn't an army of thousands of young boys who just graduated high school and given tanks and machine guns to, to, to just slaughter people in front of them. The church is a civilian group against the most elite army that has been around for the longest time. How do we respond to spiritual war? What should we do? Will we even make it past the first few minutes? Today's sermon is titled, On Guard for Thee. And let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 24, to find out more. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 24. I have three points today. Attack, arms, and action. The attack that we can expect, the call to arms, and how we go into action. As we reach this final section of Paul's letter, let's have a recap of the message in this letter. In chapter 1, Paul exclaims that God is worthy of praise and must be praised because he has a grand plan for the entire universe. He has been working this grand plan out from the beginning of time, and it leads to one outcome alone. The universe will be under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that all will willingly be under his rule, but it means that Christ will be Lord of all. This includes all things physical and spiritual. Every quark, every angel, every demon, the largest structures in the universe that are billions of light years wide, every human, every plant, every animal, Everything will be under the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. So whatever war takes place in this world, whichever political party wins, whichever celebrity passes away, whatever super intelligent computing entity is built, whichever baby is born, whichever wedding takes place, whatever mandates are put in place, whichever virus occupies the latest headline, God's grand plan will come to fruition, and Christ will be the ruler over all things. And so, church, together with Paul, we say, may the Father be praised. The Father's design is that the church will be mysteriously and is mysteriously united with Christ. Christ is the head, and the church is his body. The Father's design is that the church is ground zero of his grand plan, humans under the rule and authority of Christ, not as unwilling subjects, but as willing participants in his grand plan. In chapter 2, he describes how these willing participants, you and I, are brought into the body of Christ, people who are spiritually dead and separated from God, loving whatever our minds and bodies desire, and whatever the devil directs us to do, Such people are made alive by God. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection became our death, burial, and resurrection. And the fact that we are joined, united with Christ, means that since he is seated in heaven, we too are seated in him and with him. 
much more God's mercy and grace are put on display through us as we do the good works that he has prepared beforehand. Paul describes that in addition to being made right with God through Christ's death, we are made right with each other through Christ's death. This means that we are united with one another and together we can approach God. God has made us family members in his home and much more, he is building us together, the members of the church, to be his home, his temple, his residence. Christ fills the church and his glory and rule and authority find their increasing fullness in the church. In chapter 3, we see that all of God's family are empowered together so that even the least contribute toward the demonstration of God's grand plan to the universe. And this demonstration is towards even the demonic powers called rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. As Christ is formed in each believer, as each of us look more and more like Christ, the church doesn't just display God's work, but together we begin to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God. And Paul says that it is comprehending the breadth and length and height and depth of the limitless love of Christ. So as we, the church, conform to the character of Christ and start to comprehend the love of God, God demonstrates his manifold wisdom. And God the Father fills the church, and his glory and rule and authority find their increasing fullness in the church. In chapter 4, Paul exhorts the church to continue in unity that Christ has attained for the church. Much more, God has also gifted the church with elders so that they can equip the church in everything needed to grow to maturity. This means every member of the church is equipped to speak the truth of the gospel. Every member of the church is equipped to be united in faith, to be taught so that we aren't tossed around with every new flavor of doctrine like little children. And together we can grow into maturity of the head who is Christ. The light of the gospel transforms each of us radically. So the thief doesn't just stop stealing. He now works hard to provide for people in need. People that cursed and gossiped don't just stop their filthy talk. They are now filled with words that encourage and build up and give grace to all who hear them. People that were angry and slandered others are not just graduates of anger management. They're kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. In chapter 5 and 6, Paul continues to say that this transformation occurs when the church imitates God because each of us are God's children. So in doing this, we spread the light of the gospel of Jesus in a world that is darkened by sin. And the powers of darkness have darkened this world with sin. When this happens, the church exposes the works of darkness. And the light of the gospel awaken people from their spiritual sleep. And as believers shine the light of the gospel and set themselves apart for, from the works of darkness... We also demonstrate changed lives outside of these four walls. The transformation in the community and gathering of God's people trickles down to husbands loving wives, sacrificing everything for the benefit and holiness of our wives. Wives submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. 
Even marriages reflect and demonstrate the relationship of Christ with his bride, the church. Children obey their parents, and fathers bring God's word and the gospel to their children without frustrating them. Everyone benefits because children enjoy eternal life when they submit to God's word, and parents enjoy rewards when Christ returns. Masters and slaves in the Ephesian church were also transformed. Slaves worked for their master as though they worked for Christ. Masters treated their slaves with respect because they recognized that Christ is the Lord of all masters, both of them receiving their reward when Christ will return. All these units and relationships reflect God and his people, a husband and his bride, a father and his son, a master and his slave. As these families are transformed and as the believers in church praise God together, the Holy Spirit fills the church and the glory, rule, and authority of the Holy Spirit finds its increasing fullness in the church. Now everything looks like a fairy tale. And Paul reminds us that not everyone in the universe is excited about Christ's rule over all things. Not everyone wants to be subject to Christ. In fact, transformed believers under the rule and dominion of the triune God serve as a notice of eviction to certain persons in the universe. And because of that, the church is attacked and finds itself in spiritual warfare. So as we examine the last section of Ephesians, we're going to consider the attack on the church, the arms supplied, the call to action for the church, and let us consider our first point, the attack. When considering the attack on the church, we need to first know who the enemy is that chooses to attack the church. Let's read verse 13, 11 to verse 13. Verse 11 to verse 13. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's read verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The enemy of the church is one that has always stood opposed to the people of God. He is none other than the devil known in the Old Testament as the Satan, known in Ephesians as the prince of the power of the air, the evil one, and the devil. This is the same one that tempted Eve in the garden and catalyzed the fall of humanity into sin. He's the same one that has stood opposed to God's people, those that associated themselves with the Messiah. He's the same one who is opposed to the purposes of God. The same one that tempted Jesus in the wilderness, filled Judas to betray the Lord, and filled the heart of Ananias and Sapphira to to lie to the Lord and test him. Satan, however, does not act on his own. Just as the most powerful mafia are also powerful armies, 
just as they are organized and structured and distribute to ex- and are distributed to exert their power satan works with a plurality of powers in the heavenly places heavenly places obviously refers to the supernatural realm and not necessarily heaven where god is but it's definitely not the the physical realm so we can't see these powers with cameras or with any other scientific instruments these are powers that exist spiritual powers and they're called rulers authorities cosmic powers over this darkness and the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenlies the real enemies of church aren't human beings or institutions they aren't political parties or religious groups they aren't social agendas or ideologies these may be tools or instruments of the enemy because these people are tempted deceived and used by satan's mafia but they are not the primary enemy themselves that said while humans might not be the primary enemy people and institution and ideologies are not innocent or neutral people who follow the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air are on the same side as the devil himself and will eventually share his fate the difference is that the light of the gospel can awaken sinful human beings to true life and the work of the spirit can unite them to Christ the same cannot be said of satan and his spiritual forces these forces however do not operate in an undecided battle this battle isn't like ukraine and russia where we're all waiting to see what's going to happen but we aren't sure what exactly will happen the battle has been fought and the victor declared ephesians 1 verse 20 to 22 if you could turn to ephesians 1 20 to 22 that he worked in christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand even in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over the church christ has already been declared the victor through his resurrection and ascension this christ is exalted high above every spiritual force both now and for eternity future his position is that he has full the, the full authority of the father and he is superior to every power whether friendly or hostile and even though the heavenly realm is where the rule and authority and power and dominion of the devil is christ's throne is set high above all of those authorities what we see is that this isn't a battle of equals or an undecided future all the enemy forces are already subordinate to christ and this subordination will continue and will be fully realized as the age to come dawns on us we're going to be learning more about this new age in the fall as we consider the doctrine of end times so don't waste an opportunity to come to our wednesday meetings to learn some more let's turn to ephesians 3 and verse 10 so that through the church 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Not only are these forces defeated, but God's multifaceted wisdom and his grand plan for the universe are demonstrated through the church to all these enemy forces. When the gospel goes out to the Gentiles and Jews, when both are incorporated into the body of Christ, these demonic forces are constantly, constantly, constantly given a tangible reminder that they've been defeated. And the final overthrow is coming soon. These forces cannot stop the spread of the gospel. Isn't this such a comfort and encouragement? God is using our community to demonstrate what his master plan and pattern for the universe is. God is using this community to demonstrate that one day all things will find their reality under the feet of Jesus. And there is nothing that the enemy can do to thwart God. They tried to frustrate God's plan by killing Jesus. But that was the exact means through which God accomplished his plan. So while these powers partied and popped their champagne bottles in celebration, God showed them something that they could never have imagined. A new humanity that is united and that has access to God was birthed through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God laid the biggest bear trap in the history of the universe, and these powers fell right for it. Nobody could figure out how God would unfold his plan, and now that it is revealed and set in motion, the only thing left to do is to react to it. While God's people marvel at it and praise the Father, these hostile forces are awaiting their impending doom, an unavoidable outcome, and they attack the church because the church is a constant reminder that God's wisdom is extraordinary and that Christ is exalted and that Christ has won. Brothers and sisters, there is never a time and never will be a time when any demonic being or spirit or God or goddess will come close to threatening or rivaling the supremacy of Christ. And when you, like the Ephesian believers, feel the attack of the foes, let this be your comfort and strength. Jesus is, Christ is not just your Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord, period. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of the universe. And he awaits the final consummation when he will finally subjugate every power in heaven and on earth under his feet. But even though these enemies are defeated and awaiting their subjugation, it doesn't mean that they are weak. We have seen throughout Ephesians that the attacker is not weak, even though he is defeated. If you could turn to Ephesians 2, verse 2 and 3. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Ephesians 4 and verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The same chapter, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 5 and verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The devil is first described as the prince of the power of the air. This doesn't mean that he controls the air and that he controls storms. Prince is an Old Testament word for a king, one that is under an emperor, a type of tribal leader perhaps. And the air is the realm of all demons and spiritual powers. He is the ruler of the entire demonic agency. He's the godfather of the mafia. And these verses say that he isn't just the ruler of the demonic empire, but also the one who effectively compels men and women to live their lives according to his direction. He is at work among the sons of disobedience. His power is so effective that those that listen to him have their lives characterized by disobedience, the sons of disobedience. Those people who would prefer to, the li- to listen to the voice of the Godfather of demons than the voice of God the Father. If you are not under the Lordship of Christ, if you are not under the Lordship of Christ, you do not stand in neutral territory. You live in the kingdom of darkness under a tyrant called the devil. Now, this doesn't sound like a weak person, does it? Not at all. Oh, the devil is powerful. And his power can be felt even though he is defeated. He is the Lord of the unregenerate and master of those who have not trusted in Christ as Savior. So believer, he does pose a threat to the church and to you, especially if we give him opportunity in the church. Deceitful desires, empty words, sin in the church are all means of foothold for the devil in the church. These are all lifestyles influenced by the devil, and it belongs to our old selves. And just as Satan is defeated and not yet subjugated, the sin nature in believers is defeated but not yet subjugated. These forces of darkness can continue to work on their old subjects, affecting unity and holiness in the church. I praise the Lord for the unity we have shown despite our many differences in the last two years. And while many of our brothers and sisters out there resort to tribalism and group politics, We've been able to keep the important things important while being sensitive to the needs and consciences of one another. I praise the Lord that we've been slowly growing, patiently and kindly. Yes, we've stumbled. Yes, we've sinned against one another because we are imperfect. Yet, we have tenderheartedly forgiven one another in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit in truth and peace. 
the forces of darkness, the devil and his demons, make seemingly simple and harmless things a Trojan horse for sin. Things that affect your walk with the Lord, things that drive a wedge between spouses, sins that cause us to start having issues with political leanings of our brothers and sisters, or even small differences in theology. They're wise, cunning, and subtle in the way they affect the church, the family, and the believer. These are the ways in which these forces try to attack the church from the inside, disrupting unity and holiness. Now, having considered the attack, let's move to our second point, the arms. Since these defeated but powerful enemies attack believers, there's a call to arms in this passage. Ephesians 6 and verse 19. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul recognizes his role, his part in the grand plan. And his role is to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. We considered this in chapter 3 when he says that he was commissioned as a steward of the gospel. The mystery was made known to Paul and his mission was to declare it so that all believers would know this plan to sum up all things in Christ and that the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers together play a role in unity as the body of Christ and the home of God the Father in the Spirit. In declaring the gospel boldly and clearly, and this mystery, he seeks to share the light of Christ so that men and women who are under the control of the evil one would be delivered, would be rescued. The words of the gospel are not just armor used to protect, as we will see later, but it is armor used to move forward the agenda of Christ's supremacy over human beings. The preaching of the gospel... The declaration of the good news is how the church shines the light of Christ to awaken the dead in sins and trespasses. Paul gets to stand in front of the highest power in Rome as he pens this letter. He wants to proclaim the gospel to Nero and the highest authorities, those most under the control of the prince of the power of the air and his powerful generals. In Isaiah 52 and verse 7, It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Paul's calling and mission in this warfare is to go into the enemy territory and spread the gospel and declare that God reigns and Christ is Lord of all. He recognizes his mission and role in the war, and now he exhorts the church to its mission and role in the war. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you all may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Y'all put on the whole armor of God. The church is commanded to put this armor on because the church is under attack. Where does this armor come from? It's the armor of God, and therefore the armor comes from God. It's also the armor that God and his Messiah wear, and we read this this morning in the book of, in the book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah describes Yahweh wearing armor to defend his people and rescue them from the clutches of the nations. And we recognize from the prophets that the nations that attacked Israel aren't just any nations. They're people under the domain and control of Satan and his generals. So Paul uses these prophetic messages to show that now that the church is the body of Christ, now that the church is united with Christ, the church is also supplied with the armor of Christ to resist the enemy and the attacker. Beloved, the armor of God is given to us as a community and a congregation. It is given to us, so don't think you can stay at home, be in your corner with your Bible, with your podcast or your recording, and stay away from the church and put the armor of God on. No, it is a corporate command. You all put the whole armor of God on so that you all may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6, verse 13 and 14. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Not only, not only are we called on in verses 11 and 13 to put on the whole armor of God, but we are also called to stand. Stand against the schemes of the devil and stand firm. Believers, we are urged to not give ground to what Christ has already claimed and subjected under his feet. Therefore, Paul tells us in the earlier chapters not to turn back to the way of the Gentiles. You were Gentiles. Don't go back to that lifestyle. He says you need to put away falsehood and anger and sexual immorality and filthy talk. And once Christ has helped the thief to stop stealing... Once Christ has empowered him to provide for the needs of others, the church should stand and not allow him to go back to stealing. Therefore, it is so important for us to gather. Therefore, it is so important for us to get into each other's lives and speak in accountability to one another. We need to stand so that the devil will not get a foothold where Christ has transformed his people. He will attempt through various schemes, to turn you back to your old ways of life. It it will look innocent, it will look holy, until it fulfills its goal. The goal of making believers lose ground that Christ has redeemed and won over. Paul wants believers to stand in the victory that Christ has already won over their foes. Standing our ground isn't from a place of weakness, but from a place of strength. We don't correct one another and teach one another and help one another move forward according to God's word in holiness so that we hope Christ will not lose at the end. No, we do this because Christ has already won. We move triumphantly forward towards the climax. And we will consider this as part of our actions in the third point. But going on, believers, the call to arm is to stand Be prepared and put on the armor of God as a church. This is not a passive call, but of an active call to gather for the purpose of standing against the attack of the devil. Now, what is this armor that we need to put on? Verse 14 to 17. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The fact that the armor belongs to the Lord means even the call to arms can only happen with total dependence on the Lord as a church. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. The Lord of hosts in Isaiah wears this armor, but the armor is none other than the attributes and characteristics of God. Isaiah 11 verse 5 in the Septuagint says, And he will be guarded at the waist with righteousness and enclosed with truth at his sides. Isaiah 59 17, we read this this morning. He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Righteousness and truth are both characteristics of the Messiah's rule. And Paul tells believers that how the church stands firm is by putting on righteousness and truth. And as we read earlier, that is the gospel. What's important here, more than the position and purpose of each of these armor, is that the truth of God's word and righteous living and sharing the gospel is how the church stands firm. So we ask, why is it important to come to fundamentals of the faith at 9 o'clock in the morning? Why is it important to attend blueprints? Why is it important to make our studies on Wednesdays a priority? Aren't those optional? Isn't, nine isn't 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock mandatory? Being girded with truth is not optional. When do we sit, why do we sit under God's word week after week and get pressed into holy living? Why do we confess our sins as we did this morning and pledge to live righteously for the next week, week after week, as we participate in the Lord's Supper? Because righteous living is not optional. Why do we share the gospel and declare that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ, only through trusting that his death was for, for you and that his resurrection vindicated his message and person? Why do we share that there is no forgiveness for any, in any other than the righteous one, Jesus Christ? Because the church cannot stand without the readiness of the gospel of peace. God's righteousness God's truth and God's good news are how the church stands against the devil. We cannot hold fast in defense of the position that has already been won unless we lead holy lives. The truth spoken in love and the unity and peace that comes from the message of the gospel characterize God and characterize the church. Our ability to stand against the enemy or stand ground against the enemy, is our ability to live out the transformed life created in this community through the work of Christ. So when we ignore the truth of Scripture, 
when we give up on pushing towards holiness and righteousness, when the unity between believers and forgiveness and love comes through the gospel is forgotten, then we give ground to the enemy within our ranks. Okay, what about the external assaults on the church, like persecution and false teaching, the fiery darts of the devil? What about mandates that tell us to shut down the church? What about external threats to obeying Christ? How do we protect against that? Paul says that the shield of faith protects against fiery arrows of the evil one. This shield isn't that we need to have just a little stronger faith, or faith like that of a mustard seed. We do need to have faith and trust God's promises that when persecution comes, we should continue to obey him. The shield of faith is primarily the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God to take care of his people regardless of the outcome. That is the shield that will help the church stand its ground. I think of Tim Stevens. I think of James Coates. I think of us, dear Westmount. I think of the fear that we had when we tried to gather. The fear that comes with obeying God rather than man. But I also think of the faithfulness of God in helping his people stand in faith amidst the fiery darts of the devil. So even faithfulness from believers comes because of the faithfulness of God. Finally, the last two pieces of armor are the helmet, which is salvation, and a sword that is sourced from the Spirit, even the Word of God. The security of salvation and the transformation we have been talking about right through Ephesians are what God has already accomplished for the church, taking rotting, dead believers and making us alive together with Christ, rescuing us from God's wrath and making us objects of his grace and mercy. This is the confidence that we have in battle. This is the helmet of salvation. We have been transformed and therefore have the power of God to live transformed life. The sword sourced from the Spirit, the Word of God, is the Word proclaimed to the church, the Bibles that we have in our hands. Paul doesn't want us to reprimand Satan in the name of Jesus. He doesn't want us throwing scripture at him or other demons. He doesn't want us binding Satan. What God wants us instead to do with the sword of the Spirit is faithful declaration of the gospels to human of faithful declaration of the gospel to human beings trapped in sin in the dark world. That is what God wants us to do. The effective and powerful sword that penetrates the heart and minds of people. The weapon by which God captures people who are under the domain of sin and brings them to the kingdom of his son. The weapon that cuts off all of the effects of the old way of life and ensures that the new way of life is the characteristic of God's people. The church's confidence in the helmet of salvation and the use of the sword of the spirit is how the rule and authority of the triune God is realized in the realm of darkness, in death and disobedience. Spiritual warfare isn't naming and claiming. 
Spiritual warfare is not looking out for who the Antichrist is. The call to, the call to arms is a total dependence on God. The call to arms is what we do together as a church. The call to arms is God's people using and depending on God's character and attribute and his word, both to defend against the devil, but also attack by declaring the gospel into a dark world so that people in Satan's domain come under the rule, authority, and glory of the triune God, submitted to the rule of Christ. We considered the attack. We considered the arms. Let us consider our final point, the action. Those of us that have attended VBS and been in Sunday school have at some point been exposed to the armor of God, which rightly so has been compared to the armor of a Roman soldier. But then it gets left there. Nobody knows what to do with it. We say that God wants us to put on his armor and fight the enemy. But I don't think I really understood what my teachers told me. And sometimes I suspect but my teachers never really understood what they were saying. When we think of spiritual warfare, we can't even begin to imagine what battle looks like for civilians like us. I barely know how to use a chainsaw. How do I fight a battle? How do I get into action in a battle? We considered that action in a battle looks a little more like what we do in church and a little less like stocking up guns and ammo. So after warning the Ephesian church about the devil and his schemes, after exhorting them to stand firm, after directing them to where the source of strength and protection in this warfare is, Paul directs the believers in Ephesus to the heat of the action of the warfare. What do the front lines of this warfare look like? How do we engage the enemy in the middle? How do we engage in the middle of enemy fire? Let's read verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. After they take up the shield of faith, after they wear the helmet of salvation, after they hold on to the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word, the call to action is, pray at all times in the Spirit. Prayer at all times all prayer and supplication, all perseverance, and make supplication for all the saints. Prayer, dear brothers and sisters, is the foundation of how the church uses the armor of God to fight the devil. Ephesians 1, verse 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I, Paul, Do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Ephesians 3 and verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul realizes that the church stands with the armor of God on nothing other than bended knee. And if you examine his two letters, prayers in this letter, he essentially prays that the church puts on the armor of God, and he prays that the church is filled with the power of God in the Spirit. Paul models for them what it means to pray for all the saints, that they would understand 
what God has called them to and be able to obey God through the power of the Spirit. So the church isn't just held together through every joint and every part working together when we exercise our spiritual gifts, but the church is held together by every saint praying for one another. Making supplications for all the saints, not just for those of us that are ill, not just for those of us that have tests coming up, not just for those of us that have interviews, but prayer that every believer will be able to stand fast with the truth of God's word in righteousness, in holiness, and in truth, moving forward with the transformation of Christ's salvific work, sharing the gospel into a darkened world. That is what we need to pray for. Colossians 4.12 says, Epiphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayer, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So not only pray at all times for all the saints, but Paul says, pray in the Spirit. Pray with the Spirit's strength. Pray with the Spirit's guidance. Pray with the Spirit's help. You now know that you now know that prayer is spiritual warfare. And when you don't feel like praying, pray. Because the Spirit of God will help you pray. Even prayer needs to be done with the help and strength of God's Spirit. So nobody can say that they haven't prayed because they weren't moved to pray. Nobody can say that they haven't prayed because the Spirit didn't prompt them to pray. God's Word says that we need to pray continuously for all the saints, by the strength and with the help of the Spirit. That's why at our pod, what do we say? If you're looking for a sign that you need to pray, this is it. Start praying. Not only do we pray at all times for all the saints and in the Spirit of God, but we pray that every believer is filled with boldness to do what they are responsible to do under God's grand plan. Verse 19 and 20. And also for me, that words may be given to me in my mouth, in, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul in chapter 3 says that God has ordained that his role in the grand plan would be to, is that he would be a steward and minister of the mystery of the gospel, but in chains. Now, God hasn't ordained this plan for each person in the church, that each person would be a steward of the mystery of the gospel in chains. However, we have seen how God has empowered even the least of us to be ministers in the church, how he has pressed upon us the need to build one another up, to love our wives, to submit to our husbands, to equip the saints as elders, uh, to equip the saints as elders, to obey our parents as children, to raise our children in the fear of the Lord, to treat our employees with respect, to work for our employers as unto the Lord, to share the gospel with those that are dead in sins and shine the light of Christ in a dark world to expose the works of darkness. 
God's people need boldness for this. What may be seemingly simple to pray for is what we need to pray for. Pray that the fathers in our church and children in our church and husbands in our church and wives in our church and parents in our church and employers and employees and members and elders can all do what God has ordained us to do with boldness and with strength. We have responsibilities under this grand plan of God. And unless we fulfill it, we fail to take a stand and we give way to the devil and his schemes. Verse 21 to 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he might encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Prayer for boldness is needed, but prayer for peace is also needed. Paul greets them with peace. It's not just a greeting, but also a prayer and a desire he has for these believers. This is not peace from persecution, but the same peace that Christ has brought to a divided people. Remember how the Gentile believers were called unclean and uncircumcised? Remember how Paul had to remind them that they were now united in Christ as one family? Paul reminds them about the gospel of peace. The church cannot stand firm and fight. The church cannot pray together with the armor of God if the church is not united in peace. Our unceasing prayer is that every believer will come to live in the peace brought by Jesus Christ and the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of love in the community of God. Peace in the church is a mandatory requirement in a time of war. Not only peace, but also that the grace of God might fill the hearts of all believers. Praying that the realization that we are here by God's grace starts off by God's grace alone, starts off the exclamations at the beginning of the letter. God is to be praised because of his grace and his mercy and kindness shown to us. Grace that he had intended to us before time began. How can we be united? How can we be tender-hearted towards one another? How can we build one another up? We need to be reminded of God's grace that came to us when we were undeserving. And finally, pray for endless love. Love that the church needs to be rooted and grounded in. Love that wraps itself around the truth of the gospel that we share with one another. Love that moves one another to holiness. Love that is self-sacrificial, just as Christ loved the church. Pray for love. Now, isn't it interesting that on a given Sunday we have more people here than on a Wednesday? We have more people here than on a foundations class, in a foundations class? I understand it may be hard for some of us to make it here this evening, on, on Wednesday evenings. But I hope it's not because we don't realize that the engagement of the church in response to spiritual warfare doesn't require God's word. 
The engagement of the church requires the truth of God's word and constant prayer. And for those of us that get to enjoy the time of prayer together on Wednesday evenings, this summer sucks, right? Because we don't get to gather. And I'm looking forward to the fall. The love and support and care we have for one another from a time of prayer, the ability to speak into one another's lives because of the concern we have for prayer, the ability to engage in God's word together after prayer, they all put the package together, don't they? Why are our personal prayer lives not rigorous or intensive? And I speak about myself as well. It might be because we don't believe or realize that the church stands its ground on the knees of the saints. We're going to be starting our Wednesday meetings in a few weeks. And we all have the opportunity to gather with the body, those of us that can make it here on Wednesday evenings, to get on our knees and pray for the saints. Don't waste your opportunity to do so. We won't make it past the first few minutes as civilian soldiers unless we recognize that the enemy is the devil and his army. We won't make it unless we wear the armor of God as a church in the strength and faithfulness of God. And we won't make it unless we fight on our knees as a church, praying in the Spirit, praying for all the saints at all times to walk in righteousness and holiness, while sharing the gospel, praying for boldness to do what God has entrusted us to do, praying for peace and love and grace in the midst of war. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours, through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this morning and the opportunity to gather as your people, to praise you, to lift your name on high. We are grateful, Lord, that you teach us and you have empowered us and you have given us all things required to shine the light of Christ in this world. We acknowledge, Lord, that we are dependent on you. We are dependent on you, Father, to give us what we need. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit to empower us to, do, to pray. We are dependent on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ to unite us and to make us right with God and with each other. And so as your people, Lord, may we stand firm, may we press on, and may we look forward to the consummation of all things under the feet of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.